Hello and welcome to Please Expand. I'm Helios Rockney and today I have with me Fernando Cervantes, who is at the University of Bristol and the author of Conquistadores. In the book, it doesn't say a new history, but people call it Conquistadores a new history. Is that the official title? Yes, uh, I think I think it does say that in the in the title, doesn't it? Uh, no, no, not not in the title page actually. In the subtitle? No, not even there. On the cover. All oh, right. I've... I thought, well, the paperback edition definitely has the a new history. Uh, that wasn't um, something that I that I um, added. It was it was the publishers who added that. Right. I think it's at the moment it's a fad. You know, I've I've seen so many new histories, but at least it wasn't. You know, the America the Americans wanted to call it the untold history, <laughs> and I thought, no, that's, dramatic. that's just stupid. It's been told <laughs> so many times. Uh, so they also called it a new history <laughs> of of Spanish discovery and conquest. Right. Okay. A longer subtitle. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So before we get into the book itself, perhaps you could say a bit about why you thought that this book needed to be written. Yeah, it wasn't my idea actually. Um, I was um, working on on more recondite topics as as one does in universities. Uh, and one day I was just rang up by um, a, an agent called Felicity Bryan, who um, who told me that she'd just come back from New York and uh, that Viking uh, were very keen to have a book on the conquistadors because the um, uh, the anniversary, the big anniversaries were coming up. You know, the first uh, mainland landings uh, really happened in about 1519 in, in Mexico uh, and then the conquest of Mexico in 1521. So that. Those were big landmarks that um, that needed uh, some kind of volume, uh, and I, I said, I said to her that it wasn't really my turf, you know, in the sense that um, it's not the kind of book that I that would have, I would have thought about writing myself. Uh, but she was very um, insistent, uh, you know. She very quickly convinced me that that it could be done, and that um, there wasn't anything recent, and certainly no single volume that deals with all the conquests you know there are there are good volumes dealing with the history of peru the famous Hem, hemming john hemming you know the conquest of the incas of course there's um, there's uh, hugh thomas uh, who in the in the early 90s wrote a very good history of the conquest of mexico they're both quite traditional in the sense that they're big narrative histories and that's what they wanted but um what uh, the kind of the originality that I thought I could bring into it is uh, just incorporate quite a lot of the recent research, you know, the way in which um, the whole of the early modern Spain and the way in which they incorporated uh, all these regions of the Americas has been rethought. You know, the, the traditional history is one based on the on the model of extraction. You know, that uh, they got there and they exploited colonies for the for the sake of the metropolis and that really doesn't doesn't really work at all for the 16th and 17th centuries it worked a little bit for the 18th century because uh, that's when the bourbon reforms trying to catch up you know the spaniards realizing that they were lagging behind the big empires of uh, britain france and and holland in particular uh, wanted to emulate them and and they really did turn uh, the uh, the Spanish American kingdoms into into colonies for extraction purposes. Um, so, in the years leading up to the independence, 
you have a lot of that, uh, uh, you know, bad government sensation throughout the Americas that then they incorporated into the nationalist histories in the 19th century. And since then, we've been, it's been, it's very, very difficult to get away from that image, you know, that you have 300 years of horrendous obscurantist exploitation by these savages that were the Spaniards, you know, and how dare anyone try to understand them? They just need to be condemned. I mean, that that really is the the woke approach right now. You know, in in the states, I've, uh, it's been it was rubbished in the New York Times. You know, for 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 attempting to do the impossible. But but I think you know it, it's it will kind of gradually establish a, a new a new approach to this that I think is very very important. You know. That the need to contextualize rather than just condemn, which is not very interesting, is it? I mean, no. hi- history is full of full of enigmas that we need to try to understand, and this is one of them. Well, that was precisely what I found so fascinating in your book. It's 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 very subtle, I think, actually, because it's not the take-home message that I got, at least, was not that the Spanish weren't brutal or that they weren't. Uh, self-interested but what your account does and i think i'm quoting a reviewer of one of your books now it takes some of the wickedness out of it uh it makes the brutality seem less uh mindless almost less cruel and it, it puts as you say into this context this uh well as you say this late medieval christian crusading culture which in many respects is a new history because i, I never thought of this context as uh, being the mindset of a Columbus, a Cortez, a Pizarro. Uh, could you say a bit about this culture that you want to frame the conquistadors in and the role it plays in, in, in your reframing? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, basically it's trying to get away from uh, the tendency that we have to see the discovery of America as marking a big change in in the mentality of Europeans. Uh, you know, once America is there, you have a big um, area that you can exploit in order to enrich uh, Europe. You have the beginning of uh, the capitalist system, uh, and uh, it leads straight to the modern the modern world. You know, and that's um, uh, something that economic historians stressed, especially in the nineteen sixties and seventies. That really was the model. You know, that the the discovery of America really is the beginning of the modern world. Um, what uh, I wanted to emphasize is uh, more along the lines of what uh, John Elliott did in that little book um, back in the night. It was, it was some lectures he gave in Belfast in 1969. They were published as The Old World and the New. And um, the big question that he asked there is this very intriguing uh, question of why it took so long for Europeans to realize the novelty of America. You know, it took a very long time. Mm-hmm. If you see, Columbus died in 1506, convinced that he'd reached some part of Asia. Most Europeans couldn't really incorporate the novelty of America. Uh, even after the conquest of Mexico, which was obviously something completely new, you know, something that hadn't been there in classical or scriptural sources. And yet, you see, Cortes still in the, in the late 20s, uh, when he goes back to Europe to uh, get his interview with Charles V and get another another so-called capitulacion, you know, the authorization to to explore further. And uh, he still thinks that 
China is just up the road. You know, that's what he's going to do. He's going to get to China. He's going to, going to get to the Spice Islands. There's still very much this mentality that um, there, are, uh, there are Christians in Asia that uh, are going to be very, very willing to help uh, the Spaniards, the Western Christians, uh, to conquer Jerusalem. You know, that was still very much the, uh, the idea that uh, it was the conquest of Jerusalem that was dr the driving force behind the early explorations. We tend to think in terms of uh, avarice and, you know, the quest for gold and all that sort of thing. But if you put gold in its symbolic context, it's not really uh, um, the, the, the kind of greed that the modern capitalist system enthrones. You know, it's a very different kind of thing because it gives you the power to spread the faith. You know, of course, you you can't separate uh, personal en enrichment, and uh, you know everybody was very keen to to be rich, but it was the kind of richness that would allow you to become a big Renaissance mecenas. You know, to to give to to give more, to give things away. It was not capital accumulation that was the driving force. So it's a very it's a very different mentality, and you can see it. I think the uh, one one of the key chapters of the book is when. When I get into the um, the mendicant uh, friars that were uh, encouraged and given every facility by the by the by the conquistadors uh, to spread the Christian message, and it's a very very late medieval type of evangelization. It's not the kind of thing that we are used to nowadays. Again, we tend to think of um, the spread of Christianity as something which is politically incorrect, you know, because it's Western. It goes hand in hand with power. You know, this idea that the sword and the cross uh, went together. That's that's very much a, a, a later uh, understanding of evangelization. Very post-Reformation, you know, in the sense that after the Reformation, you have this very, very strong uh, opposition between uh, different faiths, and they start stressing differences. I am Catholic because I'm not Protestant, and therefore I'm going to emphasize all the Catholic things that are particularly anti-Protestant, and vice versa. So you get this hardening of confessional positions that requires uh, much more of an intellectual ascent. You know, so conversion is much more an intellectual uh, event. You have to convince these people. They have to accept it. And if they don't accept it, then you, then you can use violence because obviously they are in the wrong and you're in the right. I don't see very much of that kind of attitude in the early in the early centuries of evangelization. It's very much a pre-Reformation experiment. These friars were convinced that the indigenous peoples of America had in the past been exposed to some kind of Christian influence. You know, they were still very much in the, in the framework of the um, expansion of Christianity in the early years. You know, Christ had, had told the apostles to preach the gospel to the ends of the, of the world. Therefore, it must have happened. You know, there was this idea, just like uh, Thomas was believed to have evangelized India, maybe they said, well, maybe he carried on and reached America because they were still thinking that it was very close, you know, that America was very, very close to India. I mean, <laughs> the fact that they are called Indians is a dead giveaway, isn't it? They, yeah. they, so it's still very much in that mentality. These people have been evangelized in the past. They've forgotten it. So we are here just to remind them about uh, the truth, and they will accept it very naturally. And what you see is a, a fascinating process of adaptation 
uh, between the two cultures that is incredibly gradual. There is no there's there's no violent imposition of Christianity on the indigenous cultures because uh, these friars were very very clever at incorporating anything that would um, that would allow for the spread of Christianity. So they used the native languages. They used they used dances, rituals. They used the same places of worship. They kept quoting that famous letter of Pope Gregory the Great in the sixth century. In the in the sixth century, yeah, late sixth century, he wrote to Bishop Melitus, advising him to remind Augustine of Canterbury, who had been sent to England, to re-Christianize England. You know, because England was nominally Christian because of the conversion of Constantine, but in fact. Uh, Gregory realized that there was still quite a lot of paganism and that um, Augustine needed to re-Christianize England. But this letter says, please don't make the mistake of uh, annoying these people. You know, do not destroy temples. Allow them to go back to the same places because that will uh, that, that will be a much, a much more sensible approach. And these mendicant friars constantly quote that letter and they stress that the situation in Mexico is exactly the same as the situation in England under Gregory and in Germany under Boniface. So that's really the parallel. You know, you have to think in terms of late antiquity and uh, the early Middle Ages. And that's the kind of religion that spreads uh, in Spanish America in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the fascinating thing is that it's just how resilient it is. You know, how, uh, you know, these friars established the foundations of a of an unofficial tradition that remains to this day. You can see it. You know, anyone traveling in Spanish America um, can see that you know, th these are genuinely Christian cultures, which are also genuinely local, autochthonous, you know, with lots of, lots of um, native incorporations that, uh, you know, Western anthropologists usually think that it's some kind of halfway house that is not proper. They didn't finish the job. But if you think about it, how can you finish the job? I mean, what 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 is there is there such a thing? Would you be able to understand proper Christianity? I don't think it's possible. We have an understanding of Christianity that is very modern. You know, it's it's post Reformation, and we think that's that's what should have been implemented. And when we see evidence that it wasn't, we're very critical. But in fact, you know, you you really need to get inside the mentality of the time and. Uh, try to understand the context, um, and that I think is a is a much is a much um, more fruitful approach uh, to take than than one which emphasizes dichotomies. In fact, as I was reading that chapter, it made me think of Keith Thomas's uh, book, Religion and the Decline of Magic. Uh -huh. And in that, in the early chapters of that book, he he really stresses the pagan influences on English Christianity, at least. And the preservation of shrines, of what were they called? Wells, healing wells. That's what yeah. healing wells, and the saint days. I I saw the force of your point that it is indeed the case that the spread of Christianity, at least in England, from from my knowledge, took on this image of incorporating local symbology. I suppose the the doubt, if you want, in the modern mind, right, is this is this sort of this purest approach that the the religion of the native americans were sort of this this pure thing that has been tainted by a christian influence but in your book you also stress in fact the polytheism of these of these religions 
how they, they incorporate lots of gods from people they've conquered or people they've been conquered by. And in fact, one of the one of the the, uh, the biggest problems they had was that they thought that they were giving them Christianity and they thought they were adopting it the way they thought about Christianity. But in fact, they were just putting it together with their, their whole uh, the whole wealth of gods. And, and they had the devil and they had God all together. And this, this just seemed horribly heretical to some of the friars. But yeah, it was their way of incorporating it. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah. I mean, there are some friars that really understand what's going on. You know, like um, uh, Duran in particular, this Dominican, a very, very clever uh, Dominican who wrote uh, that, you know, how can you expect a complete assimilation of what we're trying to do so soon? He's writing in the 1550s and, and he says, you know, they are on the way. And they, they, they are explaining it to me that, um, you know, that famous uh, term that he uses, which is borrowed from the Nahuatl, you know, the lingua franca of central Mexico, uh, which, which is Nepantla. But this this uh, Indian says, you know, you should not be worried that we're still Nepantla. And uh, and Duran says, and I asked him what he meant by this term. And he says, oh, well, that, that they're neither fully Christian nor fully pagan, but on the way. And that I, I need to understand that their, their gods fed them in the past. So there's no reason why they shouldn't be feeding them in the present. But, you know, you have to make allowances for this. And also you need to understand just how difficult the situation was because as soon as the friars began to stress the point that uh, these ancient uh, deities, pre-Hispanic deities, needed to be displaced because the uh, Christian god was the only god, uh, the, um, the, you get this, the spread of smallpox, you know, one of the biggest tragedies in human history. I mean, COVID is... is it, it, we wouldn't have noticed it on the graphs. You know the, the, the amount of mortality that you get uh, with the spread of smallpox in in Spanish America is is tragic, really, truly tragic. Imagine these Indians thinking, "Well, it's it's when we displace the gods that we're being punished." So obviously, the gods are angry with us. These friars tell us that uh, these gods are devils. Well, we've got to make sacrifices to the devil, and they very candidly say, "Yes, we went up to the mountain to make." To sacrifice to the devil because uh, we need him to come to our help and the friars were saying but how how can you possibly think that the devil is going to come to your help well because look look what's happening you know the, so the, these kind of kinds of conversations were going on in the middle of the 16th century all the time the friars were very very quick to understand that uh, it was not something uh, to worry about unduly you know that they needed they needed to understand what they were doing and very often they, they said, well, if we just give them different uh, parameters, uh, they will very, very gradually incorporate these rites uh, into, into a Christian culture. So that's when you get the, um, the, the, the way in which they use the saints and the angels, you know, which were not, um, that, that was a perfectly, perfectly orthodox late medieval type of devotion, saints and angels. They were not. Uh, worshipped, they were venerated. So that, that's what they needed to begin to stress so that the Indians would eventually uh, develop a culture that could be uh, recognized in any part of, of Western Europe at that time. Well, Catholic um, uh, Western Europe, because obviously after the Reformation, you get a, a, a very strong displacement of saints and angels from the, from the Protestant tradition. Uh, saints in particular, because they couldn't really 
do away with angels and demons because they were scriptural. You know, the, you, a, a good Protestant would not be able to say that angels were not important. But the kind of relationship that you have with this very overpopulated supernatural world that you have in the in the late medieval period uh, was uh, translated to Spanish America and um, uh, took root. You know, you have it, it is a very rich uh, supernatural world. And, and that was, yeah, that was very evocative of Keith Thomas's work, actually. Um, you, you also briefly mentioned this, and in your book you talk about it a lot. There is this tension between the the friars on the ground, as it were, in uh, Latin America, in America, and the religious authorities in mainland Spain. And it's a tension between, you know, people who sort of get the idea, they see what's going on, and they understand what they need to do to succeed, and you've got people who have this much more abstract notion of what's going on. And you this is you introduce this term, uh, obedezco pero no cumplo. Mm-hmm. I obey but do not implement. And this is a this is a pretty important term in your book. It's uh you 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 show its its importance uh, throughout. And much like um when we started the quest for gold and the spread of the Christian faith strikes us as hypocritical. Uh, something that cannot possibly be contained within the mind of a someone who is genuine. Uh, this this expression also strikes us as rather incoherent. Could you say a bit about how 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 it was used, uh, why it was used, and again how it uh, how it changes how we think about these events? Yeah. Well, I think uh, a good place to start is just to um, to see how candid um, the acceptance that they had gone to the new world. They, they all said to serve God, the king, and to get rich. It's quite disarming, isn't it, the frankness of the statement. You can't, you can't yes, say that they're not is. being honest about it. Uh, and there's no there's no real contradiction. There isn't the tension that we see now. You know, we tend to think of um, uh, the very stark saying in, in the gospel, you cannot serve God and mammon. But I think, um, I, I think these uh, conquistadors and the early friars would have seen mammon as the complete attachment to material wealth, so that it blinds you to anything else. But uh, they were very, they were very keen to explain that the the good use of wealth and gold had, you know, mystical qualities. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like um, like like the kind of ready cash that we have in in banks now. Well, it's not it's not even ready cash now. It's in a cryptocurrencies and all this kind of thing. It wasn't like that at all. It was something very solid and um, created by God in a kind of a hierarchy of goods. So that, that's something that we need to remember. You know, it's not the, it, it doesn't have the associations with mammon that we tend to think uh, in the capitalist system. It's something much more benevolent and uh, something that can actually lead to a lot of good. You know, you can, you can do a lot of good with this gold. Uh, I'm not saying that it happened. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the time it was um, there was there was uh, serious abuse and serious exploitation and everything else. I mean, humans are humans. Okay, but what I'm trying to emphasize is the context where you 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 can understand why these arguments could be voiced without any fear of contradiction. You know, and that's that's the the mentality that we need to try to understand in order not to be uh, unfair to to um, to these people. So the principle of obedezco pero no cumplo, I think, is fascinating because it comes from a very, very long tradition 
medieval tradition of you know separate kingdoms because Spain was a mosaic of kingdoms that very gradually uh, united until you know with the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabel you have for the first time uh, what you might call a united Spain in in a in a very anachronistic sense of the word because it's not a modern nation state but you have the the beginnings of what we understand nowadays as Spain with the exception of Portugal okay because the attempt was to unify Portugal as well, and and Hispania, uh, in in the Roman sense of the word, included Portugal. So we have we have a bit of a complication there. But you have all these um, these processes of unification go hand in hand with a very very strong realization that the important thing for the monarchs to do is to protect uh, the rights and the privileges of the autonomous kingdoms. That they form, not, they don't want to trespass on those rights and privileges. What in Spanish is called fueros, you know, which is a, quite a difficult word to translate because it it also incorporates historic rights. It's something that has grown out of the the particular circumstances of that particular kingdom, and it's unique to that particular kingdom. The role of the monarch is to protect those fueros, those rights. The monarch is the fountainhead of justice. You can appeal directly to the monarch if those rights are being trampled by either invaders or people who are uh, not respecting them. You know, the, the growing, certainly the, the frontier aristocrats who very often trampled on the rights of the, of the towns. Uh, you have the, the growth of the mercantile classes. And because a lot of them were from outside Spain, you know, the whole of southern Spain was saturated with Genoese. So you have these um, uh, tensions growing, and the role of the monarch is to protect uh, those rights and privileges. That's where the principle of obedezco pero no cumplo uh, com comes into, into play. And it was deployed incredibly cleverly by uh, all the conquistadors. I mean, Cortés Cortés is a, is a genius with it. I mean, he really, the, the way in which he, um, I mean, all, all his letters to Charles V uh, emphasize that what he's doing is serving God and the monarch against the avarice of uh, people like Velázquez, who were only after their own interests. You know, obviously there's quite a lot of rhetoric, and uh, but but that that's the point he's trying to make, and that's why that's why his letters are so convincing, and that's how he managed to um, win over the support of um, uh, groups of Spaniards that that were sent to bring him under control. He, he very quickly just managed to turn the tables on them and say, look, now you're in the same situation. If you leave, you're going to go against the interests of the king. You don't want to do that. Huh? You, you better side with me. And very quickly, he began to do, do the same thing to indigenous communities. You know, they said, you know, it's in your interest to side with me against uh, uh, the oppressors. You know, the, 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 because he very soon realized that uh, uh, the Mexica, as what we know as the Aztecs nowadays, were not very popular, you know, and he could very, very, he very quickly uh, took advantage of that. And uh, the number of alliances uh, that he formed with indigenous peoples immediately brings to light that uh, the, the indigenous groups in, Me in Mexico and in Peru, when, when you eventually arrived in Peru, were very, very quick to um, identify with the Spaniards much more readily than with indigenous groups that were against them. 
So there is no uh, indigenous identity. That's something that is very, very important to emphasize. We tend to think that, you know, the indigenous peoples had some kind of identity and that that was violated by the arrival of the Europeans. But in fact, the heterogeneity of, the, of, of, of these cultures is enormous. And they themselves could see enormous differences between them and much more, many, many more similarities with what the Spaniards were trying to do. So um, that's what explains the alliances. And another thing that, um, that comes to light when you think about these issues is that uh, the, the modern concept of race can also be very misleading because uh, they didn't have um, race as we understand it nowadays, you know, which is something genetic uh, and inherited. Uh, it was much, race was much more uh, something, um, an adaptation to the environment. You know, just think about um, Columbus uh, worried about uh, going brown and losing his beard if he carried on eating rodents in Jamaica. You know, there is a letter saying, you know, we're going to end up looking like these people. And that would happen within their lifetime. You know, it was what you ate and where you lived that made you look like that and it would happen so it's not race was not a not a concept as we as we understand it nowadays um that's another another very important thing to to bear in mind and just on on this uh, this topic the relationship between the conquistadors or the spaniards and the indigenous people there is also a great nuance in how they view them Yes, there are times when they view them as backwards and savage, but there are other times when they look at where they are and they are in awe that these places could exist. Tenochtitlan is the obvious example, but Cusco as well. They are, and there's this wonderful letter, I can't remember who writes, is it Cortez to Charles V, uh, talking about how beautiful oh, yes. Tenochtitlan is? Um, maybe Bernal, Bernal Diaz is also um, uh, very... He, he can't stop praising the beauty of, of Tenochtitlan. And um, obviously they're writing with hindsight uh, and many years later. And uh, obviously there are exaggerations, you know, because they, the descriptions um, uh, have lots of parallels with, with European architecture that we know didn't exist in, in Spanish America. So in their imagination, they incorporated all sorts of things, you know, to make it, make it look like some kind of Renaissance city. Uh, you know, and extremely luxurious uh, city. It was, it had um, great advances, you know, and um, if you think of the density of population of Tenochtitlan, 200,000 people, I think only Constantinople came close uh, in those days, or I should, should I say Istanbul, because the, um, the Ottoman conquest has already happened, but all the, all the Spaniards already uh, carried on referring to Constantinople. So that was the, um, and and they they were still hopeful that they would be able to recover it from the from the Ottomans. They were still, you know, fighting the Ottomans. So um, that's um, you you are rooted in that in that tradition and that mentality, and it's being fed constantly by popular literature as well. Because you've got to remember that uh, most of these people were very keen readers of of romances of chivalry, and uh, some of these romances of chivalry it was quite difficult to draw the line between uh, myth and fact. You know, some of these romances that came back, you know, that that uh, arrived in in the 1510s and 20s, had already incorporated some of the stuff that they that, that uh, these writers in Europe were reading about the New World, 
And then they came back, you know, talking about Calafia and the Amazons and whatever. So the Spaniards knew that, you know, there were fountains of rejuvenating waters just up the road and that they would be able to find cities paved in gold and women whose bodies never aged. And all this kind of stuff was was really in their minds, uh, very realistic. You know, it wasn't just an escape of the imagination. It was something that was really feeding their um, their outlook and uh, and their... Uh, what they wanted to do. Obviously, whenever anyone talks about the subject, we talk about Bartolomeo de las Casas' very important account. What are we to do with this uh, first-hand account in light of the points that you want to make? How, how do they relate to each other? Because his account, you know, it's, it's devastating. It's, it's just, it's an endless tale of brutality. Um, yeah. Uh, Las Casas has two, at least, uh, two very different styles. If you read his um, very academic works, you know, the history of the Indies and the Apologetica Historia Sumaria, which he wrote in in the 1550s uh, and 60s, uh, trying to establish and uh, to convince his contemporaries, really, that the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayas were comparable and in some senses superior to the Greeks and the Romans. So if um, uh, Greek and Roman mythology and thought and traditions, especially the traditions of the virtues and uh, the whole ethical system uh, had been so readily incorporated into Christianity, there was no reason why they should that the same thing shouldn't happen in the new world. Uh, so it's a very, very interesting um, exercise in what you might call you know, a first attempt at comparative ethnology, as Anthony Pagnon once called it, in that uh, seminal book that he wrote in the 80s, uh, The Fall of Natural Man, where he actually gets into uh, Las Casas and Acosta, the two big uh, uh, thinkers uh, in that book. And he really explains uh, where they were coming from and, uh, and and what they were trying to do academically, both of them. And it's very, very interesting stuff. Then you have the Las Casas, who is desperate to scandalize the court in Spain in order to implement reform. That's what he wants. He wants to abolish the system of encomienda. The, the encomiendas were these um, grants of land with Indians to Europeans. And it was uh, inspired, obviously, in, in the feudal idea that uh, you would provide protection in in, in return for uh, you know, some kind of military service and, and you would make sure that, um, and labor, and you would make sure that they were well looked after and Christianized and all that sort of thing. And Las Casas saw that, you know, that it was very rare for the for the Spaniards who had Indians in encomienda uh, to treat them as they should. You know, they were not interested in their Christianization. Many of them, in fact, were arguing that you would first exploit them and then Christianize them. Because if you Christianize them, then by definition, you wouldn't be able to exploit them, you know, because they would be free. Uh, many of these, but some a spurious argument was that uh, if you capture them in war, then you could legitimately, legitimately enslave them. That was something that um, Spanish legislation from the very, very beginning in the 1490s and the 15, uh, you know, 1503, 1504, Isabel in particular, just before her death, is adamant that this is not, that, that this just cannot happen. She returns the enslaved uh, Indians that that uh, Columbus had sent because they were captured in war. 
And there was also the allegations of cannibalism and human sacrifice and whatever. And she said, look, I don't care. Uh, they are my subjects and therefore free. So that was a very, very important uh, distinction. It was not that, that so, some, some people think that um, Isabel didn't believe in slavery. That's nonsense. Of course, everybody at the time believed in slavery. Nobody. We're not at the time of emancipation. Slavery was a, an accepted fact of life. But you could not enslave your subjects. That was, that was the principle. So once uh, the Spaniards were in America, these indigenous peoples, if they accepted the sovereignty of uh, the Spanish monarchs, they were subjects and therefore free. And Las Casas, that's the point that Las Casas was making all the time. Um, and because it wasn't happening, and because of all the abuses that he, um, that he witnessed, he wanted the court to implement reform. And that's when he writes the brief account of the destruction of the Indies, which um, is a diatribe, you know, in the style of the time. That's what you did in those days. Everybody did that sort of thing. Everybody. Uh, it's not that he's a liar. He's, he's a rhetorician, and, and he's using everything in his power to scandalize uh, the, uh, the court in order to implement reform. So that's how you, how you need to, to see it. What happened, of course, uh, is that all these writings, the, the, the brief account of the destruction in particular, but others as well, and others by other, not, it was not just Las Casas who was writing uh, to, the, to the Spanish court, emphasizing the abuses and all that sort of thing. All that material could be used by the detractors of Spain, especially um, you know, in Holland and England in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, which it was in their interest to paint as dark a picture of Spain as possible, you know, because Spain was the greatest power and the greatest enemy of the of the of the other the other budding European power. So it came, it was really grist to their mill. Uh, you can see, especially William of Orange in his apology, his famous apology, which is um, another diatribe against especially Philip II, but everything Spanish. And he uses Las Casas with, of course, all the illustrations of um, Theodore the Brie, you know, those, those chilling uh, illustrations of, of human sacrifice and cannibalism, but also of Spanish oppression, you know, how the Spaniards just burnt the Indians by their hundreds and, and all that sort of thing. All that uh, was uh, amalgamated into the um, into the nineteenth-century historiography, nationalist historiography, especially uh, of the Inquisition as well. You know, the Inquisition as a as an engine of tyranny and and the most horrendous the most horrendous judicial institution in history. You know, a, a lot of people still still think that, but in the last 30, 40 years, the revisionist um, uh, historiography of the Inquisition has painted a totally different. Uh, picture. Uh, so all that is very, very slowly sinking in. And um, we, we need we need to make use of it in order to to paint a, a more balanced picture of what happened. I mean, the Inquisition, the Inquisition is, uh, is uh, fascinating, because, um, you know, when you ask yourself why there wasn't a witch craze in Spain, it's the only European country, Western European country where, where no witches were burnt. And it's because of the Inquisition. You know, not many people uh, accept that. They say, how, how can this possibly be? There were no intellectuals burnt in Spain. You know, occasionally there were a few imprisoned in order to be questioned, but none of them were, were burnt. So when you compare uh, that kind of thing to what was going on in the rest of Europe, 
uh, you can actually see the Inquisition as a force for moderation in, in many respects. Uh, and uh, some of the innovations in uh, the, in the, uh, the treatment of prisoners, uh, you know, the famous secrecy that everybody thinks, oh, how could it possibly, you, know, you, you, you got your prisoners and you, you didn't allow them to communicate and uh, the, everything that they said was secret. It sounds awful, doesn't it? But it, it was, it was uh, very deliberately done so that they would get, um, so that the inquisitors would get uh, proper testimonies because in the early years, what they found was that they were getting exactly the same, the same thing from different quarters. And they thought, oh, this is very strange. If we had some variation, then it would be more believable. But to get exactly the same thing, it means that these people have been communicating with each other. So we've got to keep them apart. Mm. So, you know, you can understand why, why this was happening. And it's a very slow process of um, uh, progress in uh, the judicial system that actually leads to more more enlightened ways of, of dealing with injustice. But that, you know, you mentioned that to, to students in, a, in the first year and they, they think that, uh, that you've gone mad. You know, how can you possibly try to defend such an outrageous institution? Not trying to defend it. I certainly don't want it back. But let's, let's try to see how, how they operated. It, once you do that, it's quite easy to, um, to get inside the mentality of, of the people who went out there. I mean, they, they came out of this world. And it was, it was not peculiarly Spanish. This was, this was the rule throughout Europe at the time. So this idea that it was the Spanish in particular that were the barbarians and the savages and the obscurantists, and that, that, is, a, that is a much later prejudice. Okay, yeah, and you in your like in your chapter on the friars, you spend a lot of time teasing out those details and drawing important distinctions between how people treated the uh, the native religions. So your book concludes with a very interesting musing on our perception of the legitimacy of these kingdoms, uh-huh. and they appear to lack legitimacy. They almost look feudal. To, to our eyes, because they're not sort of sovereign states, right? And you say that to our modern sensibilities, it is only in the modern state that a people can truly express themselves through, I suppose, political mechanisms. And you challenge this notion, and you suggest that not only do these kingdoms give adequate expression to the people who inhabited them, but that they might even be better than the sovereign states that eventually became. And so firstly, I found this uh, a difficult concept to grasp. So could you please uh, break it down a bit and explain... Yeah why we should view these kingdoms with a more uh, firstly how they're different to sort of a sovereign state and why uh, they might be more positive or more yeah, balanced well maybe. the the world of the uh, of the 16th and 17th centuries is very much a world of the composite uh, state or the composite monarchy yeah. where you have different things integrated into the into into a system with the uh, the fueros that i call the, the local privileges respected and um, you know that, that very famous um, uh, annotation by Philip II to um, to a uh, permission for a Venetian to travel from from Lisbon to Barcelona. Do you remember? Permission is given for this Venetian ambassador to travel from Lisbon to Barcelona, and and Philip writes, no, no, no. It must say from Lisbon to the frontiers of the kingdom of Portugal and Castile, and from there to the frontiers of the kingdom of Castile and Aragon, and from there to Barcelona. It's it's very important that it's done that. So he's making a point, and this is just one, one in a in a huge number of examples of 
of the way in which he was so jealous of of protecting uh, the the autonomy of of these different kingdoms. That that doesn't really. That's always in the historiography has been seen as some kind of in between state stage in the development of the modern unitary nation state. That was in, almost like a natural development. What what I want to question is, is it necessarily so? You know, because uh, uh, at the moment we're seeing we're seeing the the disintegration of the unitary nation state. We have seen how uh, some exaggerations of nationalism can lead to horrendous um, abuses. So, in other words, that the the unitary nation state is not necessarily the end point of of political progress. So, what I was trying to say, I mean, you you say that in some ways better than um, I, I if I if I said that, uh, I think it might have been a bit exaggerated. But I don't remember actually saying. Uh, what I was trying to say is that there are lots of things there that we can learn from. Yeah, they're not necessarily better, but they do give a, a, a different uh, approach. And if you're interested in transnational forms of political organization, which I think you know a lot of people in the modern world are very interested in. You know, when I was writing this book, it was it was right in the middle of the Brexit debate debates. You know, the Brexiteers are, are firm believers in the unitary sovereign state. Uh, those against uh, Brexit realize that transnational uh, forms of organization are going to stay and probably uh, uh, grow in importance. Uh, so learning from uh, pre-nationalist forms of organization uh, is, is important. And uh, there the principle of obedezco pero no cumplo is right in the middle of it. This understanding of obedience, because that's another thing, our um, modern understanding of ethics is very, very um, uh, post-Cartesian and basically Kantian yeah, in, the, in the sense that um, uh, what that, that obedience really is bowing down to uh, authority uh, regardless of what's being ordered. You know, if a person in, in authority tells you to do something, you've got to obey whether you agree with it or not. I say this this uh, understanding would have made no sense uh, back in the 16th century because uh, obedience came from the Latin ob audire, which was to listen, to establish a conversation in order to arrive at a consensus. And uh, to obey a stupid order doesn't make sense. If you can prove that that this is not going to work, then you are within your rights uh, to object to it and not to implement I think that's a very healthy attitude. The, um, uh, of course, a, a lot of people say, well, no, it just proves, you know, it, it, it is evidence that the Spanish system was terribly corrupt. Of course, I'm not denying that the principle of obedezco pero no cumplo was used uh, a lot of the time for, for corrupt, self-interested reasons, but that doesn't do away with the intellectual integrity of, of the principle. And many times it was used in, in, in very... Um, in in a, in a good way, you know, uh, in in ways that actually liberated people from from oppression. Uh, so there are all, there are all sorts of things like that that um, I think if we if we um, contextualize these attitudes that are so difficult to understand from a modern perspective, and try to get inside the mentality, they can open up all sorts of uh, questions 
uh, in in our current situation uh, to allow us to see ways of, of of dealing with things that could be much more constructive and certainly not leading to the kind of polarizations that we're seeing right now. You know, that the, the, there's too much polarization and um, a very, very inadequate degree of communication. You know, we, we need to try to open up the minds of people a bit more uh, and and seeing something so different and try to understand it, you know, if you see this is very, very different, but if you try to understand it, you come back to the modern world and you can see things in a different light. Yeah, so it is, in a very simplistic way, is sort of the take-home message of your book that these people were functioning within a, a coherent system of thought, a coherent culture, and we shouldn't view them as just crazed, brutal individuals. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, certainly say that they were as as human and as fallible as we are now. And, right, uh, yeah. yeah. And you know, the emphasis is really on a type of culture that was intrinsically religious, because that's another thing that we find uh, very difficult to understand. Uh, we tend to separate religion from culture. Uh, in a way, because religion is much more um, nowadays something for the individual conscience. You know, it's something that is um, is your business and what you believe shouldn't really affect. And you certainly shouldn't try to impose it on other people. You know, that's that's how it's a very individualist and a very interiorized uh, form of religion. And it separates really mind and matter. That's why I say it's, it's, it's post-Cartesian in that sense. And that Again, you have to remind yourself, constantly remind yourself that in the 16th and 17th centuries in the in the Hispanic world, religion just permeated everything. You couldn't separate. You know, it would have made no sense to conduct your life without reference to the divine powers. It would have been as absurd to do that as it would have been to cultivate the soil without reference to the course of the of the seasons. You know, it was a very integrated liturgical culture, uh, and that's another another aspect. Um, that uh, that needs quite a lot of imagination uh, in order to get inside that you know that kind of mentality. Yeah, I think we uh, we perhaps also struggle to believe that people could have been genuinely motivated by religious motives, and we tend to think of we have a much more materialistic notion yeah. of motivations nowadays. Yeah, that uh, any kind of religious motive is is obviously an excuse for for personal gain. Yeah, and that. I'm not denying that there was quite a lot of selfish, uh, you know, selfish motives have always been there. Yeah. But in the system, it, it made perfect sense. You wouldn't have been able to justify your actions without reference to uh, the religious culture that was all around. And it was much more ritualistic, much more liturgical in the sense of being public, you know, public worship, all these um, processions, the, the whole of political life was imbued with religious symbolism. I, I suppose in England you can see it, you know, that there's quite a lot of that uh, in, in the political culture of, of Parliament, you know, because it's rooted in, in medieval rituals and you can, but it's not something that people understand. I mean, it's, they see it as um, trappings of a, you know, something to, to attract the tourists, really. Yeah, it's lost its symbolic value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, if, but there is quite a lot of symbolic value there. You know, the fact mm. that... Um, the queen is the head of the church, and that she's crowned uh, by the archbishop. Uh, you know, there's a there's a symbiosis symbiosis there between uh, 
religion and culture that the modern world really doesn't understand. It, it tends to separate the two. But uh, we need to try constantly try to remind ourselves that that was not the case in the in the 16th century, and and uh, it, it takes a lot of um, imaginative effort uh, because we we very, we we adopt the default position. It's very easy just to say, ah, oh, well, you know, here's, they they were just out to to enrich themselves and to exploit the Indians, and it was all horrible and whatever. But just see what you know what what it produced you know the uh, the rich the cultural richness of spanish america is is there i mean i, I know i know that in the 19th and 20th centuries it, it led you know the expansion of of, of uh, liberalism and the liberal reforms and the abolition of all the laws of the indies that the that the spanish monarchy had implemented uh, led to much more marginalization of indigenous societies and it led to quite a lot of um, failed progress that you can see everywhere but if you go to the to the regions and see uh, what survives of uh, of the the so-called colonial period, well, I don't like calling it colonial. I think I think I prefer to call it vice regal. You know that kind of the, the, that religious culture that emerged in Spanish America in the 16th and 17th centuries, very resilient. You know, and it's still there. You can see it everywhere. You know, it's a it's a tribute to 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 that to that religious culture. We need we need to. Uh, there's there's no reason why we shouldn't revaluate it, and it 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 teaches us all sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was fascinating to uh, read about all these things. Just final question. That's how I like to conclude the podcast. I just like to ask my guests what they're working on uh, right now. What are, what what should we expect from Fernando Cervantes? <laughs> well, uh, I. I'm I'm trying to get back into uh, the projects that I was working on before I was so oddly distracted by uh, in order to write this book, uh, and I was actually writing on angels and demons, uh, right? Trying to understand the the theology behind them and uh, from a from a religious cultural perspective. So yeah, in in about two or three years, I think I'll 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 finish a book on angels and demons in the Hispanic world. And uh, and then after that, I've been asked to write the the Oxford History of Early Modern Europe, the the volume on on Spain and the Hispanic world. So that's obviously going to take me quite a while because that's quite a big that's quite a big volume. Yeah, uh, but there's a interesting line of connection with with your book just now. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean the, um, the 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 angels and demons things is is very uh, it's a very good way into. Uh, that that culture because um, what about, at the moment I'm reading quite a lot on, on Byzantine history because that's where the inspiration came from. What is a liturgical culture? How how do these supernatural entities relate to human beings? Why are they why are they there? Why are they important? Uh, and what's their function in the coherence not just of of the political organizations but of all the cultural expressions? Because you know again we tend to see these things as as um, remnants of a of a system that is now superseded, you know nobody believes in angels anymore or demons because um, uh, Newton, you know, the laws of gravity, he proved that uh, you didn't didn't need angels to push planets around, that it all happened through magnetism and all this kind of thing. But then you you read um, the latest uh, works by uh, uh, Newton was very very interested in angels, you know, so uh, that yeah, deeply religious. Why take this lineal approach? You know that there is there is a progress from you know magic to religion to science. 
Well, they're asking very different questions. And we have to remind ourselves that there are, we have to approach the world in a, in a more, um, in, a, in a way that allows us to ask uh, deeper questions uh, and, and to puzzle ourselves, you know, because human beings are yeah. very puzzling creatures. You know, you, you never know why they are acting in a, in a particular way. You know, there are always all sorts of complications behind them. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. Enjoyed it a lot. Thanks very much.